that their play on the field put them toward the back of the line. Kaiser doesn't see him. Ball is out. There always seems to be one team further behind. All right, gang, welcome to the Brown Notes podcast, where we let them rip on the Cleveland Browns. My name is Scott. This is Rico. What's happening? I don't know, man. What's going on? You uh, you following the playoffs at all? Nope. Probably not, right? The last playoff or the last playoff, the last game I watched, and this is where people turn the podcast off because they'll be like, why am I listening to this guy? He doesn't even watch football. The last game I watched was the Commanders game. Wow, interesting. But I've not okay, watched though. a single football game of any stripe since then. I knew they were going to lose the Steelers game. Couldn't care less about the playoffs. I'm done till next year, man. People are going to turn it off anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, I wanted to, first, first things first, this just came down like yesterday, I think. Um, Miles Garrett is not a finalist for defensive player of the year. And I'm okay with that. I totally agree with it. Um, Who is? Um, Nick Bosa, who's going to win it. Um, I don't know. A couple other dudes. You I follow like PFF every week puts out their, they grade everybody. And Garrett is always like the number one. <laughs> highest yeah and that's the thing that so can you explain that to me how he cannot be defensive player of the year but pro football focus every week grades him the highest and is this are we just wandering once again in the the canyon of analytics debate (laughs) well and and uh micah parsons nick bosa chris jones that's who the three finalists are um that just goes to show you that analytics and statistics will only take you so far. Miles Garrett is an he's a he's a he's a fr- from an analytics perspective he's a stat machine, right? All of his percentages and and pass rush win rate is second in the NFL and all that other stuff. But he's not. I've said this before. I don't care how many tr- double and triple teams he gets. I don't care how much he has to carry the defensive line because the rest of the defensive line is garbage. I don't care about any of that because he's not a disruptor. He's, he's, he wins, he wins uh, the pass rush win rate. That's great. His PFF grade is 96. That's great, but he's not a game disruptor. What do they can't, what do they base that grade on? Like what metrics are they using? That's got him always number one. I have no idea. It's it's. Uh, I, I haven't really. Uh, I know Mar- Mary Kay Cabot was talking about it this morning, and 
everybody always talks about his pass rush win rate and how much he's double and triple team and his PFF grade is always super high. And I guess the analytics take into account a bunch of different factors when they grade these guys. Like, for example, Perry and Winfrey is like in the 40s and and Miles Garrett is in the 90s. 90s okay. Yeah. So they take a bunch of they take a bunch of statistical factors into consideration when they come up with these grades, right? And so he's always in the mid to high 90s, like every single week. So from an analytical perspective, he's a freak of nature, but he's not affecting the game. And that's the problem. And that's that's how these guys get voted on. Guys like Nick Bosa. Who and, votes for the award? Is it the writers? It's the writers. The AP, dude. right? It's the fucking writers, man. And the writers watch the games. The writers don't have their spreadsheet out. The writers watch the game. So and it's a bunch dudes, of Tony Grossies. Voting they're on a it? bunch of they're a bunch of Tony Grossi who, right. who hate analytics. <laughs> it's like precisely <laughs> it. The guys that are voting on this stuff, they don't. I mean, listen, man. Watch Nick Bosa and TJ Watt play a game, and then watch Miles Garrett play a game. When the chips are down and you need a dude to show up, TJ Watt is always making a play, and Nick Bosa is always doing something to affect the game in a profound way. Miles Garrett disappears in the second half. Yeah, I mean, I've. I hate once, to say it. It's like me. It, it, I hate saying this stuff about him, but I can only go by what I see, and the dude disappears in the second half of games. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I I agree with your sentiment that for I'm just a schmuck that watches Browns games, and when I watch Browns games, we're playing the Steelers, and you see a TJ Watt or JJ Watt back in his Texans days. Yeah. Um. Those guys just were just destroying us and making and impacting the game. And, you know, it's the taking over the game. And I just never see that happen defensively. I mean, it has, I guess, I don't know if he's ever taken over a game. He's had moments, but yeah, you just don't see it, you know, that, that level of dominance. And, and I, I, I'm careful when I say, when these guys affect the game in no way am I saying that they fill up a stat sheet because sometimes it's not about that. You can affect the game and not have a stat showing that you affected the game. Right. And these dudes, what stat or no stat analytics or no analytics, the guys that are on that finalist list are affecting games, whether it's on a, whether it's on a spreadsheet or not. And, Miles Garrett is really great analytically, but he's not affecting the game. And that's why he's not on. And anybody who bitches that he should be a finalist is wrong, in my opinion. And the Browns were doing, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but part of what got Clowney so upset was they were giving Garrett what he perceived to be favorable matchups so that he would have the opportunity to pad his stats. Am I wrong? Uh, well, I mean, yes, you are absolutely correct. And really you were making clowny work a little harder. (laughs) Well, don't you want all, don't you want to always create a mismatch, right? Isn't that the kind of the idea is to create a mismatch. And I think there's two schools of thought in that, or you take your best guy and put them up against their best guy, you know? So it's like, you know, like in basketball, that kind of thing. Right. So I think there's a couple schools of thoughts on that. Well, a couple schools of thought on that, you know, maybe Um, they don't do that because they can't, because he 
won't succeed if they put him up against the best guy. So they have to accommodate him a little bit. Maybe that's maybe that's why they give him favorable matchups because maybe they have to. Isn't that what was pissing Clowney off though? Yes, and so then Clowney was refusing to play on certain downs. What a mess! So then he was refusing to play on certain downs, and he was basically feeling like they were, you know, he he was out there working a little harder than his counterpart had to because they were. I don't know, attempting to pad his stats. The way he put it, get him, get this guy into the Hall of Fame. Um, I mean, of course, I that guess- was all Mary Kay's fault, right? He ultimately just blamed that whole statement on Mary Kay. Oh my God, Jesus! <laughs> like, like he said, it was. He said he he pulled the typical. It was taken out of context. Yeah, that's what everybody goes to. And and not only was some uh, who else, somebody else was there and witnessed the whole thing, but she also had it on tape. <laughs> She also recorded it, and she also has it on tape that she asked him, are you sure you want to say this? Yeah. And he's and like, d- yeah, I want to say this. Dernis Johnson had the locker next to him and That's said, hey, it. man, Dernis, you might want to yeah. step down a little bit here. But <laughs> and he's like, nope. <laughs> listen, but, I guess, hey, listen, I personally don't care about whether he's nominated, wins it, whatever. I want the Browns to win. Doesn't make a difference to me about his personal trophy case. But I guess my question to you would be, do you see this changing with Jim Schwartz next year? You know, do you see, you know, Miles becoming that guy who takes over a game? Yeah, I do. Just because, you know, Jim Schwartz's calling card has been his great defensive line, right? And and how he makes that pass rusher guy look really damn good. And so, yeah, yeah, I feel like he's going to make Miles Garrett look real good starting next year. Definitely. I agree with you. So has Miles just been a victim of bad coaching and schemes in his time here in Cleveland? A victim to the tune of $100 million, but you know what I mean. I mean, maybe. I mean, if you look at it from that perspective, I mean, you know, he had – Greg, let's see who has been his defensive coordinators. Greg Williams, who said he was only allowed to use one move. Greg Williams, um, um, Joe, Joe Woods, who yeah. I mean, we all say so. I guess it depends on how you look at it. But well, he had another one too. I mean, right? Didn't you have somebody um, else? who was the guy was, the Browns hired and fired twice? <laughs> uh, Mel, uh, not Mel Tucker. And they had him. They were still paying off his previous contract. Oh, that's right. Uh, I can't remember who that was. <laughs> I don't remember who it was. But if you're if you're a if you're a game oh, shit. effector, it's, it shouldn't it matter? Shouldn't it not matter a lot? The the scheme that the D is dialing you up with because yeah. if you're a game effector, shouldn't you just find a way to be better than the guy you're across from? I don't care if you're getting dubbed. TJ Watt gets double teamed. He finds yeah. a way to affect the game. All these yeah, other Miles, guys are getting double teamed. Miles gets double teamed all the time. I mean, you know, it's, I don't know that that, again, it's, that's comes with uh, being the first pick in the draft, you know? I well, mean, I think uh, statistically, Mary Kay said statistically he gets double teamed more than everybody else does. Yeah. I don't know. Whatever. Well, I mean, again, though, that comes with being the first pick overall, right? I mean, I mean, you know, you want to be you want to be the guy. You want to be the guy who stands up in the press conference after the game and voices your opinion. 
well, then you have to be that guy in the field too. Like you can't have it both ways. Like you can't disappear in the second half of football games and then deem yourself the guy who gets to go talk on the press conference and bitch about stuff like he's been doing all year. You can't do that. If you can't be the guy in the field, then you can't want to be the guy in the press conference too. Right. And I, uh, can I talk a minute about, did you listen? Did you hear Tony Grossi on KNR this morning? I didn't. What do you say? This was interesting. He's usually on at 10 o'clock and this morning he had to be on like an hour later and they're like, we won't tell you why. And they're like, can we tell you why they kind of had an internal conversation about whether or not they could say anything. They decided not to. And then when Tony came on, they asked him, I said, well, can you tell us why you were, um, you know, why you were late and get this man. And I guess for anybody listening out of town, our head coach went on multiple radio shows and did like kind of a little mini media tour. And, you know, we're not really sure it's kind of out of character for Kevin Stefanski. He's not exactly like a cut up, you know? And so he's on these morning shows, you know, making yuck yucks with the uh, morning zoos. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like not really in his character. Well, guess where Tony Grossi was this morning when he wasn't on in his usual slot? All of the media members got invited to watch a film session with Kevin Stefanski, just media and just Kevin, as he kind of walked them through some of the reasons why he made the play calls he worked, those that actually were successful and those that were not. And he just took the time and he said it was all off the record. They weren't allowed to, not allowed to print or talk about anything other than the fact that they were, they were there. So it's not to be, there's going to be no write-ups coming out of this, but all the local beat writers and all the local columnists like, you know, Grossi and Mary Kay Cabot and whomever else is writing and talking about the rounds, I suppose, Daryl Ryder and all the others. We're invited to sit with Kevin while he explained to them why he makes the decisions he makes on the field. What do you think of that, Rico? Um, I I'm speechless. I I can't believe I just heard you say that. I um, are you fucking serious? Is did that really happen? Apparently, this is not some. This is not unusual. Apparently, other coaches, according to Tony, have done this in the past. Um, I guess Butch Davis did it. I guess Hugh Jackson did it one year. So, okay, what do you think? What do you think is so now? I just think this is interesting coming off of this is the first time he's done this in his three years here. And I just think this is interesting coming off of his little mini media tour. Yeah. Oh, oh, uh, he's not. Well, I can tell you that um, he's not doing any of this on his own. He's being, (laughs) he's being, he's being told that he's doing this. I don't know who's telling him he's got to do this. But somebody, I don't know if it's J dubs or if it's Gemma or if it's depot or I don't, or D I don't know who it is, but somebody's making him do this. Um, I don't really, it, it kind of maybe softens the blow a little bit knowing that other coaches have done it. But first of all, my first immediate comment is the fucking coaches don't have to justify shit to the media as far as why they call the plays that they only, they only have to justify their calling plays to their boss. Um, they don't owe 
they don't owe the press dick as far as why I called a play over another one in these media sessions. I think a re- that's a ridiculous idea. Um, on the other hand, this really, for me, man, like I'm just hearing about this for the first time um, when I should already have known about this. But well, I guess the, I guess the point is, is if this is a really bold move that that is he's clearly being put up to this and being <laughs> made and being made to do this. And this is uh, this is I don't want to say desperation. Is this an act of desperation? Is that the right way to put this? I don't think it can be framed that way because, again, it's, I guess, not uncommon. Okay. So, um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is when I hear this, I'm thinking to myself, oh, well, Tony Grossi is constantly every press conference asking him about why'd you make, why'd you go for it on fourth down there? Why did you defer, you know, you know, to, receive the ball why did you he's always so i think these guys are always questioning play calls and i think this might be an educational opportunity at least let some insight into what the thought process is tony did let out this nugget that he said that um he said that kevin said it was extremely hard switching up the offense in the last four games and calling plays the last four games, the last six games of the season when the quarterback changed. He said he really he told the media that he really struggled with that. So I don't know what that means for well, the struggles continue into the 23 Ugh. season. What does that mean exactly that he was that candid about having difficulty? Um, well, and here's the other thing. Wow, that's a pretty telling statement. So let's put that statement back to back with what he said on the fan he went to the fan first and then he went to knr second i think what i believe it was when he was with lima and carmen and they were asking him about play calling and he said you're making a decision every 35 seconds and basically he said there's nothing fun about calling plays during the game and it's and, and you're exhausted when it's all said and done so when you put that back to back with what he said about how hard it was to switch the play calling up when Deshaun Watson came in what does that tell you what do you have a thought on that at all i you know what i, I I don't, other than the obvious that Deshaun Watson is like a Ferrari and Kevin Stefanski's been driving a Yugo for his entire <laughs> career. And so he didn't really know how to handle the car. You know what I mean? And so, you know, that's kind of. I don't my know. What's your, what's your opinion on this, on him doing film sessions with the media? The guy's name is Ray Horton. He was our That's defensive it. coordinator in 2013, fired, and the Browns hired That's him it. back three and years And they were later. paying him twice. They hired him back in 2016 and fired him again. I just looked it up. Yeah, so they were paying him twice, yes. paying him on two different contracts. Yeah, so um, I was always... I was half expecting them to bring back Ray Horton when this... Oh, my God. When they fired... I mean, d- d- this. The, do you think that... <laughs> The media tour, the the press junket media tour, and the film session was was already planned before Jim Schwartz was hired. Or do you think they cooked it up because of how everybody fell in love with that press conference that he put on? I don't think it had anything to do with that. I think this uh, was okay. the result of just my opinion, man. You might be right if that's what you think. My opinion is 
I think the Haslam's are um I think the Haslam's have been on the receiving end of a lot of bad press related to Pilot J and related to the Browns. They were called the Three Stooges at one point and I don't think Billy I don't think uh I don't think billionaires take kindly to that and I don't think they take kindly to having their intelligence and their capabilities and uh you know questioned and so I think they're really sensitive to what's being said about the Browns over the last year, really ever since the Deshaun Watson trade and how, if you just take your mind back to how bad the summer went and how bad the press was and how bad the Haslam's looked, and then they followed it up with a dismal football season where the team grossly underperformed. And I think they, and then the quarterback they traded for, let's just be honest, looked like shit for six games. And so I think they feel that they want to get out ahead of this and try to put a happy face on things. And so how do you do that? Well, you talk to the people through the media. If you can't win fucking football games to make people like you, you do it through the media. So what are they doing? They, they're had, they had Jim Schwartz come in and talk about the good old days and made everybody feel warm and fuzzy. And then they send Kevin Stefanski to all the yuck, yuck morning shows to laugh it up. And, you know, um, and so, and now they have him inviting the very people whose jobs it are, whose jobs are to write about the team every day, invite him into Berea to sit him down in front of a film session and basically explain to them why they're making the decisions they're making on the field. So I think this is a, a concerted effort to manipulate the media's perception of the team and the public's perception of the team. So, and, and this is since, since. This is kind of what you do for a living. Um, do you think that this is a good idea? That it's it's a profoundly constructed PR campaign, and and since this is kind of what you do, do you do you feel good about it? Do you think that they're doing the right thing? I don't think it hurts. I don't think it hurts. I mean, there's people like look, and a lot of Browns fans and Clevelanders in general are just pessimists and cynical, so. You know, so Northeast Ohioans are just cynical. I mean, watch Believe Land. I mean, Brian Windhorst goes on a whole diatribe about this, but and he's not wrong. I don't think it hurts. Okay. I mean, we're already cynical, but come September, we'll be optimistic. And so I don't think it hurts to have the head coach get out in front of the fans and answer some questions and attempt to be more personable. It sure as hell didn't hurt what Jim Schwartz did. Everybody ate it up except for on this podcast. Sure did. And well, so, you know, I mean, it's not like, I don't think we, I don't, I don't think, think we, it, I don't think, I mean, to answer your question, I don't think it hurts. And if you're going to invite Tony Grossi, who's critical every single week about you leaning on analytics to call football games, if you're going to invite him into a, into a film session and say, well, this was the thought behind this. And actually what it turned out a lot of times, and this is another thing Tony said, was a lot of times play calls didn't go the way they wanted because one guy on the field didn't fucking do the right thing, you know? So, and they admit that. So is that coaching that you got guys making mistakes? Is that the youth of the team coming out? Um, and Kevin never calls those guys out in, in the press and he never calls them out publicly. And this meeting today was off the record so he told them behind closed doors and they're not allowed to print who and what and when 
But apparently a lot of the, when a lot of times when these things don't go well, it's at least from Kevin's perspective, it's not the play call, but it's that, you know, John Doe wasn't in the right place at the right time or where he was supposed to be. So, so uh, do you think that's a good idea that he's doing an off the record film? I mean, not just hear hear my whole, whole question first. Do you think it's a good idea that he's doing this off the record film session and off the record, throwing his players under the bus instead of just saying he's a set because the way you put it anyway, it's sounding like he's saying, well, the play call was right, but these, these jamokes were in, not in the right spot. And so it's the player's fault. Well, ultimately when you're a head coach, it falls back on you, but um, that's more or less what Grossy said was that sometimes it was just a matter of someone not doing their job, which I think is why Bill Belichick always says, do your job, do your job. If everybody's yeah. doing their job and knows what the play call is, but do I think, I guess I would be more alarmed at this if I had never heard of this before, but Grossy says it's not uncommon and that okay. it's just part of their relationship with uh, the local media and that other Browns coaches in somewhat recent history have actually done this. So Hugh Jackson, I mean, I, Butch Davis. So I, I guess I got to give them. It it shows that they care at least, right? At least that they're. It shows that they're trying. They're making an effort, and I guess that means something. At least you're trying, and I have to. Got to give them a little bit of credit for that, right? It's just interesting, though, that we, we can't really know what was said or what happened, but what he let out of the bag on the radio was that calling plays was a challenge the last six games and that it was extremely difficult and that a number of the reasons why, at least in their estimation, was people just not being where they're supposed to be. And there was one other thing that he said um, – Oh, my brain farting out on it right now. What the hell did he say? Damn it. Ah, it'll come back to me. But, you know, I, I do think it's intentional. I, th I think it's relatively harmless. I think it's the type of thing that people talk about in January and it's quickly forgotten. Sure. It'll be forgotten after Sunday's games, you know. So um, we've got a couple of negative comments from him regarding play calling. Do you think that that he genuinely is miserable calling plays and feels like he has to do it? Do you think he's because of those comments? Does that make you feel like he's inclined to give up play calling next year? Do do, do you or do you think he's just going to keep going with it? I'd be surprised if he gave up play calling. I really would. Yeah, I'd be too. surprised by that. I kind of feel like he's just locked in or he feels like maybe he has to do it or him calling the plays is gives them the best chance or something or other. I don't know, but I just find it kind of, kind of not odd, but I appreciate his candor when he on the radio said that calling plays every 35 seconds and making decisions is exhausting and no fun. Mike McDaniel calls his own plays. Doesn't he? Uh, a lot of guys do actually. Shanahan yeah. calls his own place. What's that? Shanahan calls his own place. Right. These are all younger cats, though, too. Yeah. I mean, I, it's not uncommon. I mean, it's just that, yeah. you know, I just I feel like it kind of fits the mold of the new generation of. I think McCarthy coaching. calls his own place, too, doesn't he? No, he doesn't. No, he does yeah. not. Nope, he does not. 
Um, Dave's got what's his face. That's commonplace. Um, let me ask you, uh, let's, let me shift gears for a second. I don't want to, I was going to go down the compare us to Cincinnati road, but I don't want to do that. I want to go, I want to ask you this question. So Cincinnati and San Francisco are both in the conference championships, uh, trying to get it in there. Each team could easily go to the Super Bowl this year. San Francisco's modus operandi has been completely different than Cincinnati's where Cincinnati has taken like the Kansas city approach where you've got your quarterback and, and everything else on the team is kind of relatively ancillary to that quarterback. Right. And so the quarterback carries the team, whereas San Francisco has done the complete opposite. They've built a team and, and reduced the importance of a quarterback, but they're both in the same spot. So my question to you is, is one better than the other? Should Cleveland follow one way or the other? Are they, should they, are they going to, or should they go with different? You see what I'm getting at? San Francisco is building a team around and, and reducing the need for a quarterback and, Cincinnati's taken the Kansas City approach and a lot of in a lot of teams approaches where it's all about the quarterback. I Wouldn't mean, you, you have, say though that we take the Shanahan approach because aren't we running an offense and don't we come from a school that follows the Kubiak Shanahan line? Isn't yes. that kind of the bloodline that we we're seeing play out here? You know, if you follow kind of the coaching history, this is a Kubiak Shanahan thing here what makes what i think that's i think that kind of answers the question the thing is though is that getting watson doesn't align with that right do you think that's and i feel like that which suggests that kevin's maybe the wrong coach for the job (laughs) well uh, i think we both feel like that right Well, I mean, it's just that we're, this is an offense that's supposed to minimize the quarterback. It reduces the onus of, you know, offensive success on the quarterback. And that's why he's able to get strong offensive court, uh, offensive port. If I could speak offensive performances out of Baker Mayfield, Kirk Cousins, Jacoby Brissett, that's why he's able to kind of make those offenses look good. So now you have a quarterback that forces you to switch to the Cincinnati, Kansas city um, process where it's all about the quarterback. Do you think that he can completely shift gears and flip this, flip the, the script like 180 degrees and make this a completely different style of offense? Can he do that? Because he's never, he's to your point, I agree with you. He's done it the same way his entire career. And now he's got this guy that you've got to completely change the way you do things now. Do you think Deshaun Watson knows ball? It's what everybody says. They had meetings with Watson's folks when they were candidates to secure his services and the other team showed up with like a boardroom full of people cleveland browns showed up with jimmy haslam andrew barry and kevin stefanski smallest group of any of them and they basically pulled him aside 
and sat him down with Kevin Stefanski in an iPad and talked ball. So if you think Deshaun Watson knows ball and understands the game in a deep way, and if you can check your cynicism at the door that it's all about money, he would have had to have come here because he believed that Kevin Stefanski was sharing with him a vision that he wanted to be a part of and felt he could succeed in. Even if it's all about money, I don't think Deshaun Watson wants to spend his career being a shitty quarterback playing on a shitty team. No, I, I agree. Especially not that. coming from the level that he's already performed at. So you got to believe that there are ideas on the table that they mutually agree on, and there's a vision in place that Deshaun Watson feels good about. So if How you take much? if you take it kind of away from thinking about the head coach and think about the player, and let's make no mistake, Kevin Stefanski makes three million dollars a year. <laughs> Deshaun yeah. Watson's making Make, $230 million. So who's he running makes, this? He makes 12 times. So who's running the team? Well, exactly. Number four is running the team. Right. So I don't even know that he comes here if he didn't think he could be successful in this offense. Really don't. Considering what Stefanski said about how hard it was to switch the offense, how far away well, maybe that's not a bad way, but good way to put. It. How, how much does the offense have to change from a personnel perspective? And we know it has to change a lot from a play calling perspective. But how far away is this offense to being that offense? Can they can they can they put this together in an off season, or is it going to take another year? <laughs> With what? Right you know now, what I'm uh, right now, I'm listen. You don't want to crack this nut open. With six <laughs> minutes left in the podcast. But I feel like the Browns are pretty far away right now. I'm totally way far from what I when I sat here in episode two and predicted the Browns would get to the Super Bowl inside of Watson's contract. I don't feel that way anymore. And so, you know, um, I think I think they've got a lot of work to do. I think they're in a division that's got a team that's going to contend for the Super Bowl every year. Um, we don't know what Baltimore's doing. Pittsburgh just finds a way to win because they're not preoccupied with bullshit. We're in an extremely competitive conference. We've got a leapfrog, some really good quarterbacks to even get into the conversation to get to the Super Bowl. So I'm not really optimistic about the future of the Browns. And I don't have a lot of faith in our that we have the right coach. And so that tells me I'm not looking at that I'm looking at another wasted year. <laughs> I've got a running back who's turning 27. I mean, you know, listen, man, I'm not feeling real great about the future of the team. How far does Cleveland have to go next year for Kevin Stefanski to not get fired? I don't think that's a question that can be answered. I think there's a lot of variables in place. If your quarterback, if, if Deshaun Watson, okay, Cleveland, don't kill me but if he blows out his achilles in week <laughs> one you know then i don't i and i think he gets a mulligan if he blows yeah. out his achilles in week one and guess what you're not going to have jacoby Brissett on the bench you're going to have a backup that they draft <laughs> right because they're not going right. to be paying anybody right it, if we think so, that the browns are really far away from being that team and that it's going to cost them another year to fix this and if the browns also feel that way 
don't you think they're going to give him another year after this one to put the team together the way it needs to get put together? Who, Barry? Yeah, because if they're as far away, if he said it was that hard to call an offense for him. I don't even know that they're. It's not even that they're that far away personnel wise. It's just taking a, it's a matter of just taking a look at the fact that you're a team that can't fucking finish 500 regardless of who's on the roster. And you're talking about getting past Joe Burrow and Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen. And you're talking about it. Like, it's just like, they'll just roll the balls out next year and do it. It's like, yeah, but other, it's, coaches it's a fucking good. leap, man. Other, other coaches have done it though. Other co- Brian Dayball, turned the same that coaches whole are in the final four this overnight. year as were last year. I mean, it's the same group. Brian Dayball didn't go anywhere. Ultimately, got to the playoffs. It's like this, you're looking at Joe Burrow going back to the Super Bowl again. Patrick, yeah, Patrick, the, Patrick the, Mahomes the, is in the conversation again. Drew, the Josh Giants Allen was in the, the conversation yeah, the, again. The Giants were a train wreck last year. And this year they went to the playoffs. Let's see what they do next year. Because you could say the same thing about the 2000, you know, 17, 18 Browns before whatever, 19 to 2019 Browns before Stefanski got here. The the trick is to do it consistently. I don't care what Brian Dayball or Kevin Stefanski pull out of their ass in one odd random year. It doesn't mean anything unless you are Mike Tomlin wins every fucking year. Every year. It matters when you do it consistently. And so I just see some teams and some some teams that know how to freaking win, and it's just in their DNA. And this team, it's not a part of our DNA. We okay, know how so- to win in inconsistent ways, but we're not consistent winners. I'd feel differently if they finished over 500 each of the last two years, but they didn't care to try. So if they're not if they're not as close as we think they are, and Kevin Stefanski isn't the guy, and we both think that. So where do we go from here? So next year is going to be a wasted year, right? <laughs> I don't want to like. I don't want to. Everybody's going to be, you know, there's going to be people lining up at the 480 bridge. I'm not. Uh, listen, I'm just not super optimistic that this team is going to go from last place in a division to winning the first fucking AFC North title in 40 years and 30 years, whatever it's been, and just going to march to the AFC championship. And that's what Kevin Stefanski has got to do to like, keep a paycheck, you know, to keep his direct deposit showing up every, right. I'm just not super confident that this team's going to make that leap. I think it could take a couple years and that they're probably going to have to build. It's probably remember how I talked in one of the episodes about, about windows, the Odell Beckham, Kareem Hunt, Landry window closed. We are opening the second. We are in year one of a second window. Yeah. So it might take a couple years to get it turned around. Sorry. (laughs) Go Browns. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Speaking of that, um, I have a minute 22. I was listening to the radio tonight on, uh, the, the, on the fan and they had a guy on who he think he said, he thinks that he's a big handicapper, right? He thinks Las Vegas is over under for Cleveland. As far as number of wins this year or this upcoming season is going to be around eight. So he thinks Vegas is going to predict the losing season for the Browns next year. Well, they're not going to be anybody's favorite to win. And 
They've got a super easy schedule. So even if they do make the playoffs next year, what matters is what they do in 24. They've got to start winning back-to-back years and putting together winning seasons over a window of time. That's the only thing that's going to turn this franchise around. The only thing. we got to go. We're out of time, Rico. Hey, go Browns. Go Browns. Cleveland Browns, all day, all night.